Shalom, and thank you for listening to sermons from Tikbat Israel, a Messianic synagogue in the heart of Richmond, Virginia. Listening to the podcast is great, but if you want the full experience, please join us Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for our worship service. We are located at the corner of Boulevard and Grove, across from the Art Museum. For more information, you can visit our website at tikvatisrael.com. There, you can support the ministry, learn more about Messianic Judaism, and contact us with any questions or comments. May Hashem bless you through the hearing of His Word. Avinu, we thank you for your presence this morning, for your shalom and uh, your peace and your wholeness. We pray that your Word would go forth to encourage your people, O God, and that you would be um, high and lifted up this morning. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So the following true account comes from A.J. Jacob's book, The Year of Living Biblically, in which the author, who has a mostly secular Jewish background, attempts to follow the Bible literally for 365 days. And then he wrote a book about it. So this is from page 91, quote, Day 62. It's been more than a month since my mixed fiber adventure. Time for me to tackle the second item on my list of most perplexing laws, capital punishment. The Hebrew scriptures prescribe a tremendous amount of capital punishment. It wasn't just for murder. You could also be executed for adultery, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, perjury, incest, and witchcraft, among others. A rebellious son could be sentenced to death as could a son who is persistent, a persistent drunkard and glutton. The most commonly mentioned punishment mentioned in the Hebrew Bible is stoning. So I figure, at the very least, I should try to stone. But how? I figured my loophole would be this. The Bible doesn't specify the size of the stones. So, pebbles... A few days ago, I gathered a handful of small white pebbles from Central Park, which I stuffed in my back pants pocket. Now all I needed were some victims. I decided to start with Sabbath breakers. That's easy enough to find in this workaholic city. I noticed that a pot-bellied guy down at the Avis uh, a block away had worked on both Saturday and Sunday. So no matter what, he's a a Sabbath breaker. Here's the thing, though. Even with pebbles... It is surprisingly hard to stone people. My plan had been to walk nonchalantly past the Sabbath violator and chuck the pebbles at the small of his back. But after a couple of failed passes, I realized it was a bad idea. A chucked pebble, no matter how small, does not go unnoticed. My revised plan, I would pretend to be clumsy and drop the pebble on his shoe. So I did. And in this way... I stoned, but it was probably the most polite stoning in history. I said, I'm sorry, and then leaned down to pick up the pebble, and he leaned down at the same time, and we almost butted heads, and then he apologized, and I apologized again. Highly unsatisfying. Today, I get another chance. I am resting in a small public park on the Upper West Side, the kind where you see retirees eating tuna sandwiches on benches. Hey, you're dressed weird. I look over. The speaker is an elderly man, mid-70s, I'd guess. He is tall and thin and wearing one of those caps that cabbies wore in movies from the 40s. 
You're dressed weird, he snarls. Why you dress so weird? I have on my usual tassels and for good measure have worn some sandals and I'm carrying a knotty maple walking stick I'd bought on the internet for $25. I'm trying to live by the rules of the Bible, you know, the Ten Commandments, stoning adulterers. You're stoning adulterers? Yeah, I'm stoning adulterers. I'm an adulterer. You're, you're currently an adulterer? Yeah, tonight, tomorrow, yesterday, two weeks from now, you're going to stone me? If I could, yes, that'd be great. I'll punch you in the face. I'll send you right to the cemetery. He is serious. This isn't a cutesy, grumpy old man. This is an angry old man. This is a man with seven decades of hostility behind him. I fish out my pebbles from my back pocket. I wouldn't stone you with big stones, I say. Just, just these little guys. I open my palm to show him the pebbles. He lunges at me, grabbing one out of my hand, then flinging it at my face. It whizzes by my cheek. Whoosh. I am stunned for a second. I hadn't expected this grizzled old man to make the first move. But now, there is nothing stopping me from retaliating. An eye for an eye. I take one of the remaining pebbles and whip it at his chest. It bounces off. I'll punch you right in the kisser, he says. Well, you really shouldn't commit adultery, I say. We stare at each other. My pulse has doubled. Yes, he is a septuagenarian. Yes, he just threatened me using corny honeymooners dialogue. But you could tell, this man has a strong dark side. Our glaring contest lasts ten seconds. Then he walks away, brushing by me as he leaves. Unquote. Now, <clears throat> I'm not recommending this course of action, but this story uh, serves as a, as a good lead-in to this week's New Covenant Parsha. As you may have guessed, uh, may have figured out, it's about the woman caught in adultery whom they bring to Yeshua saying that she should be stoned. And then they are trying to trap Yeshua through this. So let's pick it up in John 8, verses 1 and following. But Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he came again into the temple. All the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The Torah scholars and Pharisees bring in a woman who had been caught in adultery. After putting her in the middle, they say to Yeshua, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. In the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Now they were saying this to trap him, so that they would have grounds to accuse him. But Yeshua knelt down and started writing in the dirt with his finger. When they kept asking him, he stood up and said, The sinless one among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he knelt down again and continued writing on the ground. Now when they heard, they began to leave. One by one, the oldest ones first, until Yeshua was left alone with the woman in the middle. Straightening up, Yeshua said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Yeshua said. Go and sin no more. Today's sermon is not just about casting stones, but also it is about solving three problems. So first, before we get into the narrative itself, we have to discuss a textual problem. You see, in many Bibles, this section that, that we read today is actually left out 
or it has, uh, it appears in brackets, perhaps, or it has a footnote attached to it saying that the earliest manuscripts do not contain John chapter 7, verse 53, that's the very last verse of chapter 7, and then through 8, 11, which uh, we just read. You see, before the New Covenant writings were codified and put together, they were copied onto scrolls and they were passed around. Since the earliest copies of John's gospel do not have this story in it, most scholars do not think that John wrote this passage. However, most scholars, including Dr. David Stern, who translated the complete Jewish Bible, see it as a true story about Yeshua that was just written down a little bit later, perhaps by another apostle, such as Luke. Uh, uh, And it was added to the Gospel of John around the year 400 or so. The key to this is that we affirm that the writers of Scripture and the compilers of Scripture were both inspired by the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the writer would compile his own work. Sometimes it was edited later or compiled later, right? We believe that Moses wrote the Torah, for example, but in the Torah it talks about Moses' death. So that had to be someone else later who wrote about that, but we still believe that it's inspired. So because God is sovereign, he can work through both the writer and the editor, even if those are two different people. It's not always two different people, but sometimes it is. Think of a reporter and a newspaper editor and how they work together to bring the story to you. The, the reporter, what do they try to do? They try to write what happened. And the editor, they try to put it on the page so that it tells a cohesive story. And so the editor might rearrange the paragraphs. Uh, they might cut things that are too long, uh, or they might clarify the story if it's, if it's unclear. So we believe that Uh, the writer and the possible editor work through the Spirit of God to not only relate God's story with Israel, which is our holy scriptures, but also he worked through the arranging of the order of the narrative. He worked through the editors, perhaps, to bring out specific truths. Remember, the end of John's gospel uh, tells us this, that if John wrote down everything that Yeshua did, There wouldn't be enough books in all the world to contain it, right? So that means that they had to cut things out of the story. They had to tell enough for us to grasp the important parts of the Yeshua story that we would have faith in him. So all of this I mentioned to say about our text here uh, with the woman caught in adultery, I believe that it actually fits within the larger narrative of John chapters 7 and 8, And so there is a reason that this story was tacked on to the beginning of chapter 8, which we will now look at. So what are the themes in chapter 7 and chapter 8 a little bit that we've already seen? Remember, we've been preaching through this, and we've been walking through this as a community, so we're familiar with chapter 7. So what do we see here? We've seen, so far... But thank you, Robert. Um, the Feast of Sukkot is what's happening in, in chapter 7, right? Um, and Yeshua, like all the feasts that are mentioned in John, he connects his own identity with whatever festival that is. So he is the water of life that we learned about 
last week, right? And thank you for all of you, by the way, who contributed to our, um, to our fundraiser for um, uh, Living Water International. It's been going really well. Um, so thank you for those who had a heart. You could still give online uh, to that. But um, so Yeshua connected his own life. because He's saying he's the water of life, right, in the book, in, in the book of John, uh, connecting that with Sukkot. Remember the water-pouring ceremony. He's also the presence of God with us, right, which is the theme of Sukkot. Remember we dwelt in tabernacles or, um, or booths, and we still do that. Uh, also, we see in this area, Yeshua's conflict with the Udaioi. Who are they? The Jewish leaders, right? So he's, he's conflicting with them and, and, and arguing with them, and, and uh, that's a common theme that we see in this part of John and also in this story. Uh, number three, we see Yeshua's relationship with the Torah, right? We see uh, that he is, in a sense, under the law, Right? Because he is within Israel, so he has to follow the Torah. We see that he is above the law, right? That he has authority over it, and that he works actually through the Torah or through the law because he is the living Torah. So he has a very complex relationship with the law. Many scholars say, they read through John and they say, oh, well, Yeshua did away with the law, right? He did away with the Torah. We don't have to do that anymore. But it's actually more complex. Than that, and we would affirm that in Messianic Judaism. Amen? Amen. All right. So, and number four, we see Yeshua actually has authority to interpret the law, and that is called what? Halacha or halacha. Sometimes we say right, and that's the interpretation of the law. How do we walk out these commandments, right? And so, Yeshua actually has the authority to say how we do this law, and he gives the correct interpretation. So uh, we turn to the passage at hand, starting in verse 3. Let's, uh, with that in mind, let's look again at this story. The Torah scholars and Pharisees bring in a woman who had been caught in adultery. After putting her in the middle, they say to Yeshua, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of committing adultery. In the Torah, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What, so what do you say? Now they were saying this to trap him, so they would have grounds to accuse him. So they... Here we see they're explicitly using this woman, right? And they're using this situation to trap Yeshua. If he says, go ahead and stone her, he would be advocating for capital punishment, right? And that would be executing someone, which would not only be very cruel, but also it, would, uh, it was not permitted in, at the, um, for them to do that under the Roman government, Remember, they're under the Roman government at the time, and only that they can actually execute people. So that, that's no good. But if Yeshua says, let her go, then it would look like he's throwing out the Torah of Moses, which we know also Yeshua cannot do. But from the very outset, the situation is what we call in the legal biz, not kosher. Okay? So here is the original law from Leviticus 20, verse 10, that they're actually referencing. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, who commits adultery with his friend's wife, both the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So number one, our question is, where's the guy, right? It's supposed to be both of them. Also, we're wondering, how did they determine 
that, they, that she was actually committing adultery, right? There's actually a test in the book of Numbers for this that they do not follow. Do they or Yeshua actually have legal authority to carry out such a sentence without a judge and without a court or a, um, a Jewish uh, legal body would be called a bait din, right? Do they have the authority? They do not have that authority. This is just an angry mob, okay? So the accusers are not actually following the Torah, right? They're just using this situation to trap Yeshua. And what about the woman, right? Does she have a voice in this? Do we, do we hear from her? Do we know anything about her? We don't. And so she, she is without an advocate, in a sense, except that Yeshua kind of steps in to play that role. But she doesn't have anyone to speak for her at the beginning. So in terms of capital punishment or stoning, this was actually quite, most likely quite rare in, in the Torah, in the, in the days of the uh, Hebrew scriptures. Um, as A.J. Jacobs points out, there are a number of, of offenses that actually merit this severe punishment. But it's actually implied that the Torah allows for leniency and grace as well, because we know that there is grace in the Hebrew scriptures as much as there is in the Greek scriptures. For example, um, there's actually an extreme exception that points toward this leniency or this grace. So uh, let me see if I can explain what I mean. So this is Numbers 35, verse 31. This is an extreme exception to what I'm saying. You are not to accept ransom for the life of a murderer. He deserves to die, and he is to die. Okay? So think about this for a second. This would imply that the sin of premeditated murder is so severe and so evil that it cannot be ransomed. That there is not a price you can pay to redeem this crime. In other words, that implies that there are other things, other crimes, other sins, such as adultery, that could be ransomed or redeemed under the Torah, perhaps with a sacrifice or a monetary payment. In other words, the Torah or the law is not so barbaric and cruel as some would have us believe. Are you following me? Okay. So going back to our story in verse 6, uh, the second part. But Yeshua knelt down and started writing in the dirt with his finger. When they kept asking him, he stood up and said, The sinless one among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he knelt down again and continued writing on the ground. Now when they heard, they began to leave one by one, the oldest ones first, until Yeshua was left alone with the woman in the middle. Straightening up, Yeshua said to her, Woman, where are they? Do no one condemn you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Yeshua said, go and sin no more. So the obvious question here is, what's the question you're wondering? What was he writing on the ground? And I'll tell you definitively what he wrote on the ground. Are you ready for this? I do not know. Okay? Many have speculated, so I figured I'd throw my two cents in. Uh, based on what he says after, I think Yeshua wrote down perhaps other commandments that he knew the crowd would have broken, right? So they would realize, they would have a conviction that they were not sinless. Or perhaps he wrote down the Levitical law that we mentioned, that the man 
should also be brought in this case so that they weren't following the Torah. Or uh, maybe he wrote down God's purpose for the Torah. Maybe he wrote down something from the prophets about how the Torah is supposed to bring justice. The justice would flow like mighty waters, like a river, like it says in Amos, that that might show them what the true purpose of the Torah is. Or uh, maybe he wrote down his uh, grocery list, right? Milk and honey or uh, loaves and fish. I don't know. I don't know. To speculate, to, to such speculation, there is no end, right? But whatever it was, both what he wrote and what he said were enough to convince the crowd that they couldn't trap Yeshua in a Torah question. They also realized they had no legal case against the woman according to the full Torah, so they had to disperse. They had to concede. They didn't bring the man. They didn't have the correct witnesses, and a mob does not make a legal body that can carry out sentencing. They had nothing to stand on. But also, we see here that Yeshua does not excuse her sin, but he encourages her to live a life of purity before God. Many scholars read the story and say it shows that Yeshua did away with the Old Testament law. But as we can see, Yeshua is fully congruent, fully connected, and uh, goes along parallel to the, the Torah, the law. And he cannot be trapped into contradicting the law. So I mentioned before, I believe this passage was purposely put here in the book of John. Uh, perhaps by another apostle. So how does this fit with the surrounding text? Remember the end of John 7 takes place on the last day of what? Sukkot. And the end of that chapter and the beginning of John 8 reads like this. Then everyone went to his own house, but Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he came again into the temple. So if this is the next day, if this is dawn, then what does that mean? It's still the last day of Sukkot. Remember, Jewish festivals go evening to evening. So this is further proof that Yeshua is the water of life associated with Sukkot because in him is redemption and life and the forgiveness of sins, including adultery. It fits with Yeshua's conflict with the Udaioi, or the, the Jewish leaders, because they were trying to trap him in a Torah argument just a chapter earlier, right? The day before, right? Uh, the same thing, because what was he doing? He was healing on Shabbat. Remember, they were arguing with him about that. It fits with what we've learned about Yeshua's relationship to the law, because in it we see Yeshua upholding the Torah, and allowing for God's grace and mercy to permeate through the Torah that is still valid. And we see how Yeshua's authority to interpret the law or to make halakha, it supersedes his opponents, just as he did in John 7. Remember the previous chapter, also the last day of the festival of Sukkot? Yeshua explains, we circumcise on Shabbat to keep the covenant of Abraham. Therefore, healing, like he was doing, is acceptable on Shabbat. So he's giving halacha. He's giving interpretation. Yeshua has the authority to make halacha because he is 
the fullness of Torah. He's the embodiment of Torah. He is the fullest revelation of what the law is. So we've solved the textual problem, and we've solved the halachic problem from this passage, but there's still one more problem that this story poses, and this is a justice and mercy problem. See, God is fully just, meaning that he punishes evil, but God is also fully merciful and faithful and forgiving. In fact, this is an unresolved problem throughout most of the scriptures, including in this week's Torah portion in Exodus. And for those of you who came to Torah study this week, you know what I'm talking about, right? Remember Moses' intercession in there in Exodus 32? Yeah, well, for those who missed it, I guess there's another one in two weeks. Hashtag shameless plug. Okay, but anyways, we talked about this. Justice and mercy is, is unresolved. Um, there. And the crowd in John 8, they're trying to trap Yeshua between these two tensions. So they can say Yeshua is not from God and he is not compliant with the Torah. Wrong on both counts. This is partially solved here legally by Yeshua, but it is fully resolved later in the story on the tree, which is commonly called the cross. When Yeshua died on the tree for our sins, that means he absorbed the punishment that we deserved, and he brought mercy and forgiveness through his atoning death. The natural consequence of sin is death. But in him, we not only have the forgiveness of our sins, we have the resurrection power of life to turn away from sin and death. In other words, we've all fallen short of the Torah. We, along with the crowd that accused this woman, all of us, we are not without sin. We are not without mistakes. We are not pure. In fact, we are like that crowd that accused the woman in many ways. We accuse others of sins, but uh, we're not blameless. But in Messiah Yeshua, in him, we are empowered to live a life of allegiance, life of allegiance and alignment with the king, in which we are moving away from adultery toward faithfulness. We are moving away from hate and accusation, and we're moving toward love. We're moving away from death toward life. So how is God calling each one of us personally to receive Yeshua's death for our sins and to align our hearts with his faithfulness and love and with his life? On the cross, on the tree, Yeshua says to all of us, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Let's pray. Avinu, we thank you that um, you're so faithful to us, Lord. We thank you for um, your sending your son, Yeshua, as a Messiah to teach us about the Torah, to teach us about your ways, to teach us that you are indeed merciful and compassionate 
and that you actually empower us to walk away, to turn away from sins like adultery and sins like anger and hate and to turn toward you and that you have the power to, to, um, to bring us into the fullness of your life um, and the fullness of your love and the fullness of your faithfulness by trusting in you, O oh Lord. And um, I just pray that if anyone had a sense that they um, needed needed that in their life, that they need you, they, they want a relationship with you, and they're, they're far from you, Lord, I pray that you would touch them in their hearts right now, and that um, after the service, that they would come up to me or, or another leader, and they would ask for us to pray for them, that they would be able to know the fullness of your love and what it's like to actually have a relationship with you through Yeshua the Messiah and what it's like to to live a life um, dedicated in allegiance to you because you are our king, but you're also our father. And uh, it's a life of love. It's a life of fullness. It's a life of following your Torah and being empowered to do so by the Ruach HaKodesh, by the Holy Spirit. And I pray if anyone does not know the fullness of that life, that they would soon come into a knowledge of that um, by your goodness and by your grace. And in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.